Amen. Thank you, Mitchell and Carol Ann. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out now for our children's church service. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 1, actually. It's where we're going to begin this morning. Turn to John chapter 1. As we've been studying the gospel of John, we have seen a consistent theme that we're going to see echoed during my Advent series, sermon series that I'd like to bring to you beginning this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 13, and we'll see if you can spot the theme that's also echoed, foreshadowed, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. John chapter 1, as we've worked through the gospel of John all the way to chapter 5 at this point, We're looking back to John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent sent from God whose name was John. That's not John the Apostle, it's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Do you see a theme woven through these first few verses? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What is the theme that we see given to us in John chapter 1, as we've been focusing on, that we see echoed through the entire gospel of John, that we see prophesied in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, beginning really in verse 7, developed in verse 8, focused, uh, sorry, beginning in chapter 7 of Isaiah, focused on in chapter 8, drawn to conclusion at the end of chapter 8, and then bursting onto the scene in chapter 9, what is it? It's the theme of light and darkness. We live in a dark world filled with people blinded to the truth of the gospel. And so I would have you turn back, if you haven't already, to Isaiah chapter 9. As we see this theme developed in the Old Testament. God has sent his light into the midst of the darkness of this world in order to bring spiritual sight to his people. That's the theme. God has sent the light, Jesus Christ, into the midst of the darkness of this world, the blinding darkness of this world, in order to effectually affect something to bring spiritual sight to his people. And as we open up John chapter 1, we have to understand that John's audience, most of them are familiar with the Old Testament scripture. This concept of light and darkness is not new to them because it's the prophecies about Messiah. And so even from the very beginning, 
As John writes his gospel, he is weaving together all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that this light is shining into the darkness. So the reason that I have chosen Isaiah chapter 9 as my series for the next four weeks is twofold. Number one, it fits so perfectly with the gospel of John that we've been working through on Sunday morning. And number two, because I preached through this passage five years ago and I think I did a terrible job and so I'm going to take another crack at it and try to fix everything I said five years ago. And uh, often that's the case as we look back and go, man, I wish I had another crack at that. And the nice thing about Christmas is there are only so many passages that deal with Christmas. And so uh, if you were here five years ago, as some of you were, you know, perhaps um, you'll hear it better. For those, the rest of you, uh, hopefully you'll receive a blessing this time around, okay? And so Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at this passage together during this Advent season. As I said earlier, this concept of light and darkness is woven all through the prophecies of Messiah. It is a consistent theme that those who are without Christ are blind. Their hearts are hardened. They exist in a world of darkness that is in need of light. Sin brings with it darkness and a, a blinding veil over the eyes of those who are unsaved. This prophecy given to us in Isaiah chapter 9 is not just about the first coming of Christ in the advent of the birth of Christ, as we see given to us at the beginning of the Gospels. It does refer to that, but it also refers to the prophecy of Christ's second coming. You can think of prophecies in the Old Testament like mountain ranges. If you've ever lived near mountain ranges, you know, you can see a, a, a group of mountains and you see all of these mountaintops and you think, man, look at this mountaintop and that mountaintop and that mountaintop. And, and then you travel to the first mountaintop and you realize there are miles between these mountains but from a distance you just see the tips and so in Isaiah chapter 9 what we have is we have the tips of the mountains we have prophecies that are coming to be fulfilled some in the first advent of Christ and others in the second advent some to be partially fulfilled or you could even say spiritually fulfilled in the first advent of Christ and then physically fulfilled in his second coming he has come to establish his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men by dying on the cross, paying that atoning price for sin. And then he will come and set up his physical kingdom to physically rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth where we will, where we will live for all of eternity. And we see the context given of this prophecy of darkness and light. Look with me at chapter 8, the very last Verse of chapter 8 says, They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness and gloom and the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then the very first sentence of chapter 9, that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage together this morning. God, we come before you and ask your blessing 
on the service, on the message, as we've heard sung so appropriately before the message that we would rejoice when we think of you. And so the church rejoices to think of our sins being forgiven and looking to that day in the future and when we will gather together as your body and rejoice for all of eternity. Would you give us insight to see that in your scripture this morning? As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9 in verse 1 tells us that Messiah has come into the world as the light. I'm going to tell you how we're going to structure the sermon this morning and then how we're going to structure the sermons in the coming weeks. This morning, we're going to look specifically at that light. We're going to look at what the light does, and then we're going to begin the conversation together of who that light is. And Isaiah gives us four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're going to look at what the light does this morning and dip our toe, per se, into that first, uh, that, that first, qualifica- or that first explanation of who the light is. Because Isaiah says, this is what the light will do, and then this is who the light is. And so we first have to understand, as Isaiah gives it to us, what this light does. And so I'm going to give you a series of words that will help us understand what the light does, and then we'll dip our toe a little bit this morning if we have time into who the light is in looking at the phrase, wonderful counselor. I want you to understand that in chapter 9 and verse 1, if you direct your attention there with me, this whole concept of, of the light paving the way should draw our attention back to the exodus and the, Israel, the, the Israelite journey through the wilderness. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, even Galilee of the nations. And, and it's this picture here that this light is coming that he's going to explain in a little while that, that's going to pave a way to the, to, to the land of God. And the image, if we were Jews, that would be brought up in our minds is this idea that God's children are wandering in darkness as in the wilderness. And just like at night when God would come as, what, a pillar of fire by night, right? And a pillar of cloud by day. So Jesus is that pillar of fire that now paves the way for his people, the light given by God to show the path to the Father. Like the light, the pillar of fire given to the children of Israel in the wilderness, thus revealed the way to the promised land. So Jesus is that light that reveals the Father. And so the first word that I'd like to show you this morning is that this is a revealing light in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 2. The revealing light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them this light has shone. On them has light shown. 
It's the idea that there are people who are enveloped in darkness, and once you turn on the light, the light reveals what is in the darkness. The light shines on those people who've been enveloped in darkness, and it is this light of, this light of the gospel that reveals the sinfulness and the sinful hearts of the world. That is why the unsaved world is so passionate about hiding shielding themselves from that light and also trying to extinguish that light. Why does the unsaved world hate the message of Christianity so much? The the message of exclusivity. That there is one God, his name is Yahweh. There is one way to the Father through Jesus Christ and all of those who don't bow their knee to Christ and come to him for forgiveness of sins and repentance and faith. Are no, those who do not come to God that way are banished from God's goodness and grace and love in hell and those who come to Christ are his children who spend eternity with him in heaven. Why does the world hate that message so much? Because the light reveals their sin. And so this light that has come into the world reveals the darkness. It is a revealing light. This is why, as we will see, as I've read, and I encourage you to just read the Gospel of John over and over, something that stuck out to me earlier this week as I was rereading the Gospel, is the hatred that the Jewish leadership had for Jesus because he was disrupting their sin. They didn't ignore him. They couldn't ignore him. And so they had to get rid of him because the light reveals the darkness. It is a revealing light in verse 2. Verse 3 tells us it is an effectual light. That That means it causes something. It works its effect. The light brings, in verse 3, a harvest of souls. Look in verse 3 with me. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. What's happening here is it's a joy that's brought in, but it's an effectual light that is reaping that harvest. It is an effectual light that is actually implanting joy in the hearts of those who receive Christ. It's not some random floodlight inadvertently shining on the world without intent. I've never... Uh, experienced um, being in uh, a jail yard at night, but I've seen, you know, video depictions of such with the floodlight that passes back and forth. I don't know if that's actually a thing or if that's just some sort of dramatic, you know, effect given. But those floodlights just go back and forth randomly shining, hoping to find something, or actually probably hoping not to find anything, but, but shining back and forth. And that is not the light of the gospel. It is not as though Jesus just randomly shines the light of the gospel in the world. The way this is phrased is like a focused beam directed and effectually working at people's hearts. Saving individual people. Jesus doesn't save people as a group, right? He doesn't, we, we, you don't come into community and get some sort of spell cast over you that because if you, because if you join the church or if you attend the congregation, somehow you come into God's favor. That God's light is a focused beam on the individual heart, effectively working salvation. 
And any time that the truth of Scripture is present, that beam is shining. And I'll remind you at the beginning of this Christmas season like I do every year, and that is pray that God would use the truth of Christmas carols sung by unsaved people to reach people for Christ. This month is unlike any other month of the year and that you have people who don't believe these songs singing them and smiling about it. And everybody's happy and and you walk into a store that's run by unsaved people for unsaved purposes and they're playing Christmas hymns. And so what should that cause you to do? It causes you to stop and to pray and say, God, use that message. Would there be someone who would listen to a radio station or an artist that has no interest in God singing the truth of the gospel and could hear the message as that light shines into their heart? And so may I encourage you to pray that God would use these songs to point people to Christ? What is the result when this light is focused on individual hearts? It's a revealing light. It's an effectual light. Thirdly, it's a joyful light because this light produces joy. This light brings eternal joy to all those to whom it shines. Look at verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's this idea that when God works in the life of somebody, they have joy. And friend, that's what the gospel produces. If you weren't here for Sunday school, friend, you missed a beautiful presentation of the importance of Bible translation. And having seen many pictures or presentations about translation, there's one picture that always sticks out, as as Brother Tim Fink shared uh, this morning, a picture of a group of people having the Word of God in their language for the first time, and the smiles that are on their face, and that needs to rub off on some of us, doesn't it? Because sometimes we come in to worship our Lord with 17 translations on our phone and and different study Bibles and we come in looking like the Grinch who stole Christmas and you need to smile, right? Or maybe you need to get saved. You need to realize that you're forgiven and show the joy of the Lord in your heart. If there is no joy, there may be no Christ. Because this light brings joy. I shared this with our, uh, the families of our, of our Christian school who were here for our Christmas concert Friday night. But, you know, Christmas is a very unique time because it's in this season that we have the greatest expectations for joy and often also have the greatest letdowns, right? It's like broken expectations as a child, Um, you know, there's something that Satan puts in the mail every year for us, and it's called an Amazon catalog. I don't know if if you've seen that or not, but it's about this thick, and it's filled with discontentment, you know, and and so I threw ours away before it even got in the house. You know, one of the greatest things that I can do from our mailbox to our house is walk by the trash can and dump about three-quarters of everything that comes in the mail, right? Um, and then someone else very kindly gave us theirs because they didn't have kids in the home. And, uh, and it made it to the counter before I saw it. 
And, um, and, and then by, you know, two weeks later, what is it filled with? Pencil circles and pen circles and stars. And before you know it, the entire, I mean, if we were to buy everything that was circled, we'd have to take a second and third mortgage out on our house at least, right? I mean, it's unbelievable. And so we have these expectations and then there are lists that are made and discussions about food and, and, and meals and family visiting and how the weather's just going to be perfect and not ruin anything and all of these expectations that are built up and then Christmas comes and even if it's perfect, you know what happens? You wake up the morning of the 26th. That, that's what happens. And you realize there are 364 shopping days until Christmas. And that present that seems so alluring doesn't meet expectations and that food that tasted so good is giving you indigestion all night. And you realize that nothing in this world satisfies. And friends, listen carefully. That's the greatest gift God could ever give you. Because if you were satisfied with this world, you wouldn't need him. And so the greatest gift that he gives you, as we say at community often, is a giant hole in your heart the size of God that only he can fill. And when that light shines in your life and the presence of God fills your heart when you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, so you are given joy because it is a joyful Light. They're rejoicing in the multiplication of the people of God. They're rejoicing of the conquering of sin and sadness. And the manger for us is a reminder that one day everything broken will be mended. That one day everything that's sad will be undone. That some of us will gather around a Christmas table this year with empty chairs. For our loved ones who are in the presence of the Lord are not able to come. And it's in that moment that we're reminded that one day it will not be that way. As we gather in heaven together. It fills our heart with joy. Verse 4. What else does this light do? It brings freedom. It is a freeing Light. Do you feel yourself trapped? Do you feel yourself in, in chains, in bondage, in what you're going through? The, the light of God in the person of Jesus Christ has come to bring freedom from the bondage of sin and from the yoke of the burden of this darkness that's been removed. The burden of the, the sin of the unsaved heart is impossible to bear. Jesus has come to replace that unbearable burden with the joyful yoke of righteousness, which is joy and pleasure for those who trust in Christ. For his commandments are not burdensome for the believer. I'd like you to notice in verse 4 the phrase, very fascinating phrase, the rod of his oppressor is broken. You know, there's a very real sense in which this passage has with it the, the freeing concept that you don't have to fear persecution around you. 
you see, for those who would oppress and persecute and even kill Christ in their worst moment on the darkest day in history, all they could do in their oppression was accomplish redemption. And so as the rod of the oppressor is broken, so you do not need to fear persecution. Is it coming, friends? It is coming. When, I don't know. But if we follow the trend of unsaved people leading any country in all of history, in any nation, in any people group, it's the blind leading the blind into darkness. We should find comfort in Matthew chapter 10. Can I read this for us this morning? If you want to write it down, you can go back and look at it later. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. Jesus is speaking to his apostles and he gives them this concept of joy which he will then demonstrate for them. Listen, listen to the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 10 to his 12 apostles as he sends them out. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Do not fear those who can kill the body but not the soul. Friend, if you long for heaven... Someone who threatens to kill you is only giving you a shortcut. One thing that the light of the gospel works in your life is freedom. Freedom from fear. If you're living in fear, your God isn't big enough. Freedom from sin. Freedom from fear. Verse 5 tells us that this is also a conquering light. A conquering light. This light will bring victory over the forces that cloak this world in darkness. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, verse 5 says, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. When the sun conquers sin for all of eternity. Verse 5 is a promise that when Christ returns, he will conquer sin. He is the ultimate and perfect judge. No unforgiven sinner will escape his wrath. No repentant sinner will escape his blessing. He is the just and conquering king. 
Verse 6 gives us a great comfort that this is a personal light. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. If you write in your Bible or you highlight in your Bible that phrase, to us, needs to be circled and underlined and highlighted. To us. It's a personal light. Jesus didn't come as some impersonal force. Jesus doesn't keep his creation at arm's length. He doesn't separate himself from the messiness of this world. Yes, he was separate from sin in the sense that he did not have any sin nature, nor did he sin actively in any way, or passively for that matter. He actively fulfilled all righteousness. But yet he was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He was truly man in every way. Look at verse 6. And verse 7 tells us, lastly, that this is a ruling light. It is a revealing light. It is effectual. It is joyful. It is freeing. It is conquering. It is personal. And it is ruling. This light that comes into the world, works this by the hand of God. The government shall be upon his shoulder, for this light shall rule as king. Once his kingdom is set up, there will be no end. It is an eternal rule. God's kingdom built spiritually now, physically in in the future, ruled and reigned by King Jesus. It will be an eternal rule of peace and justice, and righteousness. Do your hearts cry out for those things today? Peace on earth, goodwill towards those with whom he is pleased, justice around us, that righteousness would reign. Does your heart cry out for that? May we live as citizens of this earth that promote that, realizing it will never truly be fulfilled on this earth and living with that reality and longing for the next where God's eternal kingdom will reign in perfect justice and peace and righteousness forever. These verses so far center around what the light will do. The question is, who is this light? What is he like? Verse 6 tells us that it's a son, a child. Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus claims both titles. For He is truly man. Every every nuance and implication and essence of what it means to be human, Jesus was. In every way. And every nuance and implication and essence of what it means to be God, Jesus was in every way. And so the prophecy is that this one, this child, this son will be called. And and in names we see in verse 6, if you look together with me, 
his name shall be called. In names in Scripture, we find character. We find um, an explanation of who the person is, of what the person is like. And so we'll end briefly this morning with just looking at this phrase, wonderful counselor. Here's what the light will do, but who is that light? I've been accused of using the word wonderful too often. People who know me well know that I say wonderful all the time. That was a wonderful meal. Oh, this is wonderful. You know, this is, this is, this is, I can't think of any other words. So I just say, this is wonderful. You know, some of you say the same thing. Christmas is evidently the most wonderful time of the year. And if we look at this word wonderful as just meaning that, this is good. This is maybe even the best. To, to be excited about, to be looked forward to, you will, you'll miss what Isaiah is prophesying because this word wonderful means filled with wonder and amazement. It means beyond comprehension. It means supernatural. It means miraculous. And so when it says that Jesus is wonderful, this son that was to come in Isaiah's day who came 2,000 years ago now for us is miraculous, supernatural, and beyond comprehension. Not because you can't know him, but because you can't fully comprehend his nature and his essence because he is God. He is wonderful, meaning that Looking at the person of Christ causes us to stand in wonder and awe. That when we sing about him, there is a holy reverence and an excitement that wells up within us as we long to see this one face to face that we've worshipped. And the goal would be, friend, listen carefully, the goal would be that when you get to heaven and you see Jesus, you recognize him from everything you've believed about him. That, that you will be blown away of everything that you could not have known. But when you see his person, there should be an essence to where uh, you fall down in worship and you recognize him because you've been believing the truth. He is wonderful. He is filling us with awe. And he is the wonderful counselor, the miraculous, the supernatural counselor. We need to be careful with this word as well. Because you may be seeing a counselor or you may even be a counselor. But that is not, th th I should say this word means so much more than just that. It, it implies two things. This word wisdom this word, sorry, this word counselor implies two things. It implies wisdom and it implies ruling and decision making. The best illustration that I could give you in our culture today would be the way that our government is set up with the president and his cabinet. You could call the cabinet his counselors. In that those who are in his cabinet, whether it be the secretary of defense or the sec or, or the for, or, you know, all the, I'm not going to start naming them or I'll forget one, right? But let's just stick with the Secretary of Defense. The president isn't necessarily supposed to know everything there is to know about war and about our relationship with different countries because that'd be impossible for one man to know that and to know everything it is to run our country. 
So he brings in a counselor, one who is wise in those matters and also has authority to make decisions in those matters. And so the Secretary of State is just making, uh, building relationships with those outside of the country. And, 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 and so the president is, is supposed to surround himself or herself with, with people who are experts in their area and then give them authority to make right decisions and rule in that area. That's what this word means. It is this combination of wisdom and ruling decision-making. And it's actually standing in contrast, if you look back to Isaiah 7 and 8, making contrast to King Ahaz, who is bringing darkness in Israel, and Isaiah is saying, there's one who's coming who is supernatural, who is miraculous, who is more than you can ever comprehend in his righteousness and beauty, and he will rule in righteousness. He will rule in wisdom. And the comfort that we have that this word counselor brings to us is that Jesus possesses all wisdom. In fact, Paul tells the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Christ is the wisdom of God and Christ is the power of God. Like he possesses in the fullness of himself the wisdom of God. What does this look like worked out? James chapter 3, the wisdom that's from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, a harvest of righteousness is sown in this peace. And so you have this active wisdom ruling because he's a counselor, he's a ruler, he's a decision maker. In all his wisdom, Jesus rules this world in a perfect way. There is not one atom that is outside of his control. Not A-D-A-M as in person, but A-T-O-M, atom as an element. So when we combine these two thoughts, we see that Jesus is miraculous beyond our comprehension, thus worthy of our awe and wonder, and all things are under his wise operation, as he is the wonderful counselor. It's who he is. I'd like to draw just two applications as we close, thinking on this concept of what the light does in our world and who Jesus is in being wonderful counselor. It's in Jesus, it's in Jesus' wisdom and the counsel in eternity past and in knowledge and wisdom from all eternity that God possesses, that God orchestrated a plan of salvation that you or I would never come up with. That plan of salvation. The, the Jews thought it was going to be a political salvation of a physical kingship when Jesus came. And you and I, left to our own devices, would probably come up with the same thing. If you were to say there's a people lost in darkness and sin, how can God come rescue them? You and I would probably say in our own minds, well, send them down and take everybody out. Everybody who's bad, just take them out, set up your kingdom, rule forever. But that's not God's plan in his love and in his wisdom. The offering of salvation no longer through the mediator of the nation of Israel, but now open to all nations through the person of Christ. 
you have a, a wise ruling application in the plan of redemption in that Jesus came as a baby. That God in the flesh, in, in all that this implies, all that this implies, was physically birthed and laid in a cattle trough. Like you look at that and you say, it doesn't make sense to us and we're so used to it, maybe we haven't thought about it deeply enough. And then in God's wisdom, this baby, through perfect, obedient righteousness, would live and be righteous so that you could see the Father one day and then die a substitutionary death so that you could see the Father one day. Like that was his plan. And in hindsight, the only, the only response that's adequate to meditating on God's wisdom in his plan and in his rule is to worship him and to say, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm not running the world Thank you that I'm not making these decisions, but that I can trust you. So the, so the first application is in the plan of salvation. I'd like to bring a second application in God's wisdom that would be specifically applicable to those in our congregation that in this season of Christmas may find it harder to find joy. And that God in his perfect his perfect wisdom is the wonderful counselor. His perfect rule has ordained that your suffering be the catalyst of spiritual growth. That, that the hardship that's brought into your life is actually the means by which God is sanctifying you. It's the, it's the way that he's making you holy. That as you persevere, that as you find the grace of God that as you are, are living an obedient Christian life in the midst of hardship, Peter and James focus on this so much that it's actually through the waters of trials that God changes you. And so this Christmas, if, if it's harder to smile and easier to cry, the wonderful counselor is revealing to you that it is his plan and wisdom in your life that you become more like Christ through that suffering. Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5. Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why can you in your suffering during this Advent season trust your wonderful counselor? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and per endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
And so when what we see happening around us or what we experience in our lives, if when that and the truth of Scripture don't match up, when there's a gap, we have to fill that with trust in our wonderful Counselor who is working all things out of love for the glory of Christ and God and for our benefit as we find joy in this Christmas season, worshiping our wonderful Counselor. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give grace and truth during this time, that you would help us to worship you and love you in a new and perfect way through this Christmas season. May we learn to trust you.